Okay, Jamie, so why is it then that we associate the founding of America with the arrival of the Pilgrim Fathers rather than the arrival of Lord Delaware in June 1610? Largely, I think, because people would rather eat a turkey than a haunch of human, uh, put simply. But also because I think the whole Jamestown experiment was so messy, so factionalized, so grim, and took part, took place over such a long period, took time to evolve. I think the whole story of the Mayflower is more clean cut, more defined. And so it's easier to create history from that than from something like Jamestown. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Hell is emptied and all the devils are here. So wrote William Shakespeare in his play The Tempest, first performed for King James I at the Banqueting House in Whitehall in November 1611. The bard was actually talking about a storm, but it could quite easily have applied to England's first colony in America, Jamestown. Founded in 1607, the settlement quickly descended into a nightmare of feuding, factionalism, skirmish, starvation, and ultimately even cannibalism. So, Jamie, Jamestown, why there, why then? Power, money, and that old colonial and commercial rule that if the enemy aren't there, you need to be, and you need to be there fast. I think, put simply, uh, Spain had an empire, England did not. Spain's empire stretched from Peru to the Philippines. It was vast. Spain was getting two million gold ducats a year uh, from its empire, from the Americas. England wasn't. And the days of the privateers of Hawkins and Frobisher and Drake and Grenville were long past. There had been a peace accord in 1604 between England and Spain. So we weren't raiding their treasure ships were their fleets, so we weren't getting a cut of the action. Our percentage, if you like. So there was a commercial reason to move into that area. Uh, the Spanish, too, had a monopoly of the tobacco trade. We wanted part of that. Uh, tobacco being sold in London was incredibly expensive. And you can tell from the size of the pipes that people were smoking at the time. They called it drinking tobacco, not inhaling tobacco, by the way. But it was incredibly pricey. So it would have been nice if we had our own tobacco plantations. So there was a lot of pressure to create a commercial company, a trading company. There had been others through the Elizabethan period. There was the Muscovy Company of 1555. There was the Levant Company of 1581. There was already the East India Company of 1600. So this was a sort of logical progression, a private stock company that would get rich 
traders, merchants, bankers in the city of London to invest in a company and create a commercial entity and see what was out there. You also have the pressure, the lure of the possibility that the Appalachian Mountains were going to be the new El Dorado, that there would be gold there. We hadn't found any gold. So it was very important that we pointed in that direction. There was also the lure, the possibility of a large inner lake somewhere in the Americas, somewhere on that continent, that would give us access to the Pacific across America. People hadn't explored the interior, so this was the perfect opportunity. So things were definitely moving in that direction. And there was royal patronage of a kind. Uh, Prince Henry, the 13-year-old son of King James, was very pious, very Protestant, and he also believed in colonialism. He was far less cautious than his father in pushing this. And so you immediately got this rivalry between father and son. And that rivalry over time developed into a kind of proxy war because standing at King James' shoulder was none other than Robert Cecil, first Earl of Salisbury. He was the uh, Secretary of State. He was the Lord Treasurer. And both he and King James were very suspicious of this colonial venture. They didn't want to provoke war with Spain because the royal coffers couldn't tolerate that. They were already running pretty dry. He didn't like to see the influence of his son uh, grow because Prince Henry was considered the great white hope of England and was extremely popular. Even though he was only 13 years old at that point. Yes, but, but in marked contrast to the debauched, sybaritic court of King James, his was almost monastic, his rival court. The people of England loved him. So he was behind that venture. In fact, he put his personal gunner, the royal gunner, Robert Tyndall, on the first expedition as the navigator. So you can see that royal connection. And the other thing that worried James was that he saw the emergence of the merchant class, the banking class, who were very closely connected to parliamentarians. And he did not want to see this rise. He did not want to see their power develop at the expense of the crown, particularly when he believed in the divine right of kings. Despite the fact that he, he needed money. Oh, he did need money, and he would have got 20% from, from any venture such as that. But there was this real worry that it would provoke conflict with Spain. We would also not only produce this merchant class that could challenge him, it would also give some sort of impetus to democratic uh, leanings, to democratic beginnings in a colony away from his control. And if you look at Shakespeare's Tempest, it does talk, it alludes to these sort of democratic forces that were being discussed at the time. And so it was very much part of that era, part of that age. And James was worried. So I think right from the start, Robert Cecil decided to destroy the colony. He decided that this was a proxy war with Prince Henry. This was a proxy war with the parliamentarians. And he was going to win. He was going to destroy that colony from within if he could. And did uh, Roanoke have any bearing on any of this? What had happened 20 or 30 years before? 
Yes, well, Roanoke was discovered and settled in the 1580s, and then 1590 was found to have been totally abandoned, and no one knew what had happened. Who, who settled? It, it was a group of settlers, but backed by Sir Walter Raleigh, who, of course, his star had plummeted. He, by the stage of the Jamestown settlement, was actually banged up in the tower. So he had no influence on this at all, although he had, of course, given the name Virginia to Virginia uh, in order to flatter Queen Elizabeth. So he was very much behind this venture. He wanted to see it happen. But by that stage, he had already lost the patent. He had lost the control of Virginia, and that had passed back to the crown. So when the Virginia company was established, it was set up under royal charter. So you had the Virginia company. It was uh, headed up by Sir Thomas Smythe, who was already head of the East India Company, had huge connections, a great deal of money. But above him, the Virginia Company was going to be answerable to a royal council. So that was the sort of compromise. The ships came together. There were three ships. The largest of those was the, the Susan Constant, 120 tons, the Godspeed, 40 tons, and then the small pinnace, discovery that was 20 tons. So these were tiny ships, and it was a tiny venture. They found 100 people, scraped them together. The hierarchs of that expedition were also rans, a lot of them. They were long in the tooth. They were adventurers. They were ne'er-do-wells. They were people who had been soldiering throughout their lives. The admiral commanding it was Christopher Newport, who had lost his arm in previous conflicts. You had the likes of uh, Edward Maria Wingfield, who ended up as the first president. You had Gabriel Archer, the lawyer, John Ratcliffe, who was possibly, in fact, probably an agent of Robert Sissel. And you'll see what he got up to later on. But it's suspected that he may well have been a former Catholic priest called John Sycamore, who was turned by Cecil and owed his allegiance to Cecil. And there's also uh, a shadow of the name uh, Radcliffe associated with the gunpowder plot. So he may well have been in the pay of Cecil and certainly did a lot to damage the settlement later on. And then you have, of course, John Smith. He was younger, he was in his late 20s, but he already had a, a pretty roistering, uh, violent career behind him. He had served as a mercenary, been captured by the Ottomans, had apparently beaten the brains of his master out with a threshing bat before escaping via Prague back to England. So all these men had a lot of soldiering behind them, but they weren't the sort of clean-cut Puritans that you came across later on with the Mayflower 13 years later. Okay. And also, had there anything like this happened on the northern part of the American continent with the Spanish? The Spanish hadn't settled it, which is one of the key reasons that the English wanted to be there. Uh, the Spanish, of course, had Southern America. They had a lot of the places in the Caribbean. They had taken the French Huguenot settlement, the tiny French Huguenot settlement of Fort Caroline down in Florida in 1565, and slaughtered the hundred or so inhabitants there. So 
that was another of the reasons that Robert Cecil was worried. He thought this would simply provoke the Spanish to attack. Okay, this is probably a good moment to uh, have a talk about the Spanish as one of the groups with skin in the game. Yes, they certainly had an interest and they were very well informed. Their ambassador, Faniga, uh, in London knew everything. He was very well connected to the Privy Council. So he knew how many ships were sailing, how many colonists were sailing, uh, basically a hundred. The Spanish immediately assumed that this was going to be not only a challenge to their empire, but it would be a pirate base from which the English could attack their treasure fleets later on or raid their possessions round the Indies and the Americas. So they were extremely worried. A, a war council was called by Philip III, and he and his councillors sat there wondering what they could do. But Philip III was quite cautious and thought, maybe we'll just sit here and see what happens. He was probably told by Robert Cecil, relax, I will see that the place is destroyed. And Robert Cecil began to maneuver, began to manipulate. And you see his hand in so much of the subsequent events that occurred out in Jamestown. So that's the Spanish. Um, We also obviously have the, the locals. What about them? Yes, the Indians who, who came to be known as either savages or naturals by the English colonists. The land where the English settled down at Jamestown, that whole region along the James River, the sort of 82 miles of the James River, was known as Sina Kamoko. It was controlled by the chief of chiefs, the Mamanderturk, called Powhatan, a father of Pocahontas, of course, that people know about. His lands, his peoples, were really composed of many different tribes. It was a, it was a basically a tribal federation. And Powhatan and his enforcer, O.P. Kankanu, ruled them with, I suppose you could call it an iron fist. They, they would certainly attack if people didn't pay him tribute and didn't send their girls to be his wives, if they didn't go hunting on his behalf, and if they refused to obey his commands. His kingdom were basically Algonquin. There were pressures all around his kingdom. To the south and the west, there were Suin tribes moving in. Beyond the falls at the end of the James River, you had his great rivals, the Monikins, and another tribe that were supposed to be cannibalistic. They were known as the Pocatronaks. You had the tribes coming down from the north, down the rivers in war canoes, and they were the Iroquoians. Those tribes, that group of Indians who spoke the Iroquoian language, included the Massawomax on the far side of Chesapeake Bay. So he was very hemmed in. He had been told by seers and his priests that one day there would come people in giant swans that would take over his lands. So he was certainly on the watch for people who would come in and settle. When the English did arrive, uh, there was a real problem with how to deal with them from his point of view. Um, Part of the time he tried to buy them off and trade, part of the time he attacked. But that set the scene, the sort of skirmish, trade, compromise that you see for the next few years. 
And even later on, in 1622, the Indian tribes of Powhatan, who by then were controlled by O.P. Kankanu, his enforcer and right-hand man, uh, they attacked the colony even when it was well-established and killed uh, probably, it's estimated, up to 347 people. So there was a sort of tension. There was always going to be a tension between the newcomers and those who were already settled. And yet these tribes that were found by the people coming from England, uh, they were all very basic. They lived a very basic life. It was a very primitive lifestyle. They lived in rudimentary shelters. There was no metalworking of any kind. There was no steel. They made artificial weirs to catch fish. They caught turkeys. They hunted deer. Their arrowheads were basically turkey spurs. There was one tribe, actually, uh, called the Appomattox. They had wooden swords, and they had studded them with iron ore fragments. So they were actually quite hardy. And, and if you try and find another culture, other tribes, other peoples who use similar swords, uh, you only have to go as far back as the 1520s and the Aztecs because they had wooden swords, but their swords were edged not with iron ore, but with uh, obsidian, which is volcanic glass. But they used their swords for a different purpose. They didn't kill their rivals and enemies. They just wanted to wound them so they could capture them and then pull out their hearts in human sacrifice rituals. So they used them for a different um, purpose. But most of the weapons were, as I said, turkey spur arrows and basic rudimentary swords or spears and swords made out of antlers and bone. So it, it was very primitive. So you can imagine them encountering these colonists from England. It was, talk about a clash of cultures, that was it. 1607, the voyage and the colony is established. So the colonists set out from the south coast of England at the beginning of February 1607. They take six weeks to cross the Atlantic. They go through the Indies. One of the problems is that they use up a lot of the food uh, that they thought they were going to take to the colony with them. They, they had sat off the coast of England for two months waiting for decent weather. So by the time they leave, by the time they cross the Atlantic, go through the Indies, they, they've used up a lot of their food. They stop at a lot of the islands on the way, like Nevis, Puerto Rico, Dominica, all these sorts of places. After a huge storm, they chance upon Chesapeake Bay. And that is in April 1607. So finally, they make it to Chesapeake Bay. But the, the omens hadn't been good all the way across because uh, John Smith was in the brig. Oh, already the factionalism and infighting had started. Uh, John Smith, because he was pushing a sort of religious angle and the others were pushing a commercial angle, he irritated the hell out of him. So, so in the end, Newport put him in the brig. So he was there surrounded by bags of grain for almost the entire journey. That wasn't a good start. By the time they found the James River in late April 1607, uh, I think it's fair to say it was a, probably a, a no-speak situation. <laughs> anyway, they go up the James. They chance upon this marshy promontory. 
It's about 35 miles up the James River. They love the fact that it's sort of protected by a causeway from the shore. But it's such an unpromising location that even the local tribe, the Paspahe, don't bother to settle it. But lo and behold, the English turn up. They, they talk to some of the tribes on the way, like the Kikatan near the mouth of the James. They decide to lodge on this marshy promontory. Who, who's in charge at this moment? At this moment, it's their Admiral Christopher Newport, who commands the fleet of small ships. And so they set up shop there. Newport goes upriver, does a bit of exploration. He hangs around for quite some time. He wants to see the area, wants to see whether the men he's brought across with him are going to get on. One of the problems is, as I said right at the beginning, there are a lot of sort of ne'er-do-wells. They, they couldn't find enough volunteers. So they've got the scrapings of London life that they take with them. There are quite a few people they've brought from Newgate Jail. Uh, later <laughs> yeah. on, there's, there's an entry in one of the diaries saying uh, that 30 youths have been brought over. And they prove so unruly, they're put back on a ship and taken back to England. Is this the sort of early form of transportation? It is absolutely the early form of transportation. A lot of these people have run out of road in London. They've run out of luck, run out of money. And so this is the possibility, not just of venture, but of making money. The only person who can make a clear profit is Christopher Newport. All the others are on a sort of share scheme where they share in the profit if any comes along. And they, when they arrive, what's their plan? What do they build? They don't build anything initially because they don't want to provoke the local Indians. That is Edward Maria Wingfield's uh, first decision. He is created president. Uh, A council is formed, but already there is a lot of tension on the council. And this isn't helped by the fact that as summer draws in, they are hit by the bloody flux and by ague, by fever and by dysentery. And that already starts to winnow their numbers. They're seriously depleted. And then what happens in May, there is a massive Indian attack. 200 Indians uh, attack them. Wingfield gets an arrow through his beard. Uh, Some people are killed, some people are wounded. And that's the moment where Wingfield is present thinks, we better bloody well build ourselves a fort. And, And so the rest of the year is taken up. Um, among those who are still standing, not wounded, um, who are not dying from the bloody flux, they start to build a fort. How did they defend themselves before the fort? They obviously had uh, muskets, rifled muskets, they had pistols, they had steel swords. The the Indians weren't armed with anything more than uh, bone spears and arrows. Uh, The arrows were extremely powerful. There was a demonstration given by Indians to the colonists at one stage. The colonists couldn't get through a shield with a pistol shot, whereas the arrows went straight through. So these were powerful bows and arrows. There was nothing nothing kindergarten about the weapons at their disposal, all their fighting skills. I mean, these were tribes that have survived on their wits and on hunting for a very long time. So hunting colonists was not 
beyond their abilities. So what happens is that the colonists start to build a fort. And that, of course, takes up most of their time. They don't have time to clear fields. So they miss the planting season. So their situation gets worse and worse as 1607 uh, continues. And the, it's not much of a fort anyway. No, the, the, the longest side of it is 140 yards. The other sides of it is a triangle, are about 100 yards. And so they are marooned on this little island with the causeway uh, leading up to the main banks. It's very marshy. It's very fever-ridden. They do manage to get some culverin cannons, these 11-foot cannons, off the ships and onto platforms. So it does start giving them defense. And the Indians aren't strong enough to take the fort from that point. But every time the colonists go outside the fort, they are attacked. And there's a story of one colonist going out to take a dump, and he's hit by three arrows, runs back in the fort shouting alarm and dies a couple of days later. So Somehow that is a really dreadful way to go, isn't it? Yeah, you go all that way and then get three arrows in you. And here's a reading from James Jackson's historical thriller, Cradle, How America Was Born in Blood. To arms! To arms! Though sick and malnourished, the settlers responded, tumbling once more from their shelters to meet the attack. A bell clanged and the uproar grew, and above it all came the howls of the Indians. Their paspahe had come in strength. This was their land their ancestral home, their quarrel. No outsider could settle here and go unharmed. No wood palisade could prevent repeated assault. It helped that the white men were weak and scarcely able to mount a defence. Gradually the Paspahe would wear down the adversary and restore the land they knew as Tesenomoko to a world free of foreign trespass. Tonight was another chance to harvest scalps. They've breached the stockade! The gate! They're coming in through the gate! Stand fast! They shall not prevail if we are strong! War cries mingled with oaths and screams and the sporadic report of pistol and musket. Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Kneeling in the midst of the carnage, arms outstretched, and his words bellowed loud, the chaplain sought to comfort and encourage. His prayers went unheeded, yet his flock was fighting hard, battling to retake ground and move to the offensive. A bronze culverin disgorged a canister of shot, its muzzle belching flame and the light dazzling for an instant. No quarter would be given. Framed in the interior was a running scene of mayhem. Here, President John Ratcliffe discharging a pistol in the face of a native. There, the aristocrat George Percy coolly fencing with another and sweeping aside a sword fashioned from bone to plunge his rapier deep. There, too, the gunner Robert Tyndall improvising with a cannon rod to crush the skull of his opponent. The Indians were losing their advantage. Satan is loosed and the savages infest us! A stocky, bearded figure strode untroubled through the chaos. He was not about to yield to fear or permit death to take him. An Indian had the misfortune to confront him and was quickly dispatched with a shovel. 
A second reached to fit an arrow to his bow and was similarly cut down. Captain John Smith trudged on. In his almost thirty years, he had sailed the seas and fought Spaniard and Ottoman alike, encountering all manner of heathens and pirates. Indeed, he had once been enslaved by Tartars and only escaped after employing a threshing bat to beat out the brains of his master. Experience was rarely wasted. To me, boys, we have them! Smith drew and fired a pistol and then reversed it to club a native to the ground. They had to learn, these red-painted warriors, who considered the settlers their enemy and had no notion that their wilderness was already named Virginia. If Spain or France or the Dutch had not seized it, England surely would. If territory existed ripe for the taking, an armed merchant from Europe was bound to investigate. A boy called out, They falter, Mr Smith! I'm not taking victory for granted. The adventurer dodged an arrow. Keep behind, for the savages may yet bite. What do they gain by this? It is a mark of intent and a test of their courage. They are probing our defence. Their losses are high, the boy pointed out. Yet they pierce us to the core. Smith reloaded his pistol and blew excess powder from the pan. Some here have no fight, and others embrace invasion by the savage. There was a gruff disdain in the Lincolnshire voice a belligerence that suffered neither fools nor authority. What Sir Walter Raleigh had once claimed for England, Smith had pledged the Virginia Company to help explore and settle and sow. The bloodshed was hardly a surprise. Sighing softly, the boy pitched forward, an arrow protruding from his chest. Smith knelt briefly at his side and cradled the lolling head. It was a dung heap of a place in which to die, but at least it had been quick. Better a turkey spur or a sharpened iron crystal to the heart than the slow agonies of dysentery or the fever. He laid the body down and returned to the fray. We get to the autumn and winter of 1607. Newport heads home. He does do a bit more exploration but the person who is the key explorer at this stage is John Smith. He's very restless. He's sick to death of the people in the camp, doesn't get on with Wingfield, doesn't get on with Radcliffe or Gabriel Archer. So he takes the three-ton shallop and starts exploring, but also wants to get grains. So he does some punitive raids. He also does some bartering. Um, the local Indians, it appears, like copper and beads, and sometimes the odd hatchet and cloak. So there's a bit of trade, there's a bit of interaction. And then finally come the winter of 1607, uh, old John Smith or young John Smith, uh, he was only about 27 at the time, uh, goes on an expedition up the James and disappears. And no one knows where he's gone. And then finally a message comes back to the camp um, saying, uh, get a millstone, uh, get some products because I'm held captive and I'll be coming back and you can trade with the Indians. You know, I'll be all right. And who has he met in, in this time? In this time, he's met Opie Kankanu, the right-hand man of Powhatan. He eventually meets Powhatan. Powhatan, of course, has a daughter who it's believed was probably around 12 at the time. She, according to Smith, 
saves him from having his brains beaten out with a rock. It's very likely that he was going to have his brains beaten out with a rock. The Indians, they take prisoners, they take hostages, they trade hostages, but they have some deeply unpleasant ways of killing people. As I said, they're very primitive. They don't have metal workings. But what they do have are knives made from mussel shells. If they catch you, if they don't like you, if they want to make a spectacle, they will tie you down. They will have the priests dancing around with their faces and bodies painted red, hence the term redskin. They will joint you. They will use the reeds to cut through your joints, take your arms and legs off. And they'll also skin you alive and scalp you with mussel shells. They turn you over, they cut you at the back of the neck, and then they peel your scalp and face off. And so that's what can happen. And that's what did happen to several settlers who, who wandered off or were captured uh, by the Indians during this period. So John Smith is lucky to survive that encounter. Um, and from that moment on, he forms a friendship with Pocahontas. No one quite knows whether it was sexual. Uh, historians are fairly delicate about this, given her age. At the beginning of 1608, uh, right at the start of January, who should wander back into camp but John Smith with two Indians accompanying him? And he asks for the settlers to demonstrate their power by firing a culvering cannon, which the settlers do. John Smith thinks he's going to be a bit of a hero. He thinks he's going to be uh, the talk of the colony. In fact, what happens is because of the power struggle in the camp, Radcliffe and Gabriel Archer essentially mount a campaign against him, bring charges against him. He is sentenced to death for betrayal, for treachery, for deserting the colony, for consorting and fraternizing with the enemy. They, they basically trump up charges against him. They put a noose around his neck, and they're going to hang him from a tree in the middle of the settlement. But at that precise point, who should appear but Christopher Newport on his first resupply mission from England? And it's very handy, but it works out very well possibly because the Indians knew that he was arriving and thought that John Smith could go back to talk to Christopher Newport and negotiate with him. And that's why he was brought back right at that moment. And that's why he was lucky to survive that encounter too with his own colonists. But again, it doesn't create a good atmosphere. From that moment on, morale and discipline in the camp start to disintegrate. It ends up with a man called Kendall being imprisoned on the pinnace. He tries to escape on the pinnace and sail it to Spain to tell the Spanish uh, what is happening. He ends up being uh, executed by firing squad. Then you, Edward Wingfield, the president, gets deposed by John Radcliffe, and he ends up being uh, put on the pinnace. And he tries to escape too, but he's... Uh, stopped by a well-aimed shot from the fort. So you can see this seething mutiny that is happening already by 1608. But the most momentous thing that happens in 1608 is that John Smith, tiring of all this again, goes off on his first discovery. 
So we've heard before about these Smith discoveries. What were they? Well, it was Smith going off on a frolic of his own, essentially, in the shallop. His first discovery, he goes off for a few weeks. He discovers the Nanticoke River, does a bit of exploration of that. He gets stung by a stingray, almost dies. So by the time he gets back, he's in a pretty weakened state, but he revives pretty swiftly. I don't think he wants to be in the camp with John Radcliffe. I think there are murderous intentions, probably on both sides. At one point, Radcliffe's gun explodes and maims his hand. So who knows if John Smith had a hand in that. But They're a bunch of desperados, aren't they? They are total desperados, and there's no love lost between any of them. Um, Newport uh, leaves, takes Wingfield with him because Wingfield's going nowhere and isn't going to be uh, present again. Uh, Smith goes off on another discovery. This time he heads off to try and cross the Chesapeake. He crosses the Chesapeake and meets up with a Massawomack, the Iroquois tribe in their war canoes. By this stage, his men are so ill, they have to put up their guns and hang their hats on them to make them look as if they're taller than they are and more of them than there are. So it's pretty desperate. But he does circumnavigate the Chesapeake. I mean, in the early discovery, he actually went up the Potomac River and stands on the, on the rocks and overlooks the area that Washington, D.C. now stands on. So it was a pretty extraordinary thing to do and a, and a brave thing to do. But by the time he gets back from his second discovery, disunity, mutiny, and sickness in the camp are getting really pretty bad. And the worst thing is that there's still no proper planting. They can't go out and clear fields properly because the Indians keep on attacking them. And still worse, John Radcliffe, uh, the, the president at that stage, who's taken over from Wingfield. And potential Cecil agent. And potential Cecil agent has come up with an ingenious way of sowing even more unrest in the camp and undermining the ability of the camp to survive by ordering the men there to build him a palace in the woods. So there's this enormous construction going on, making John Radcliffe a, a palace, like a, some sort of oligarch. Smith is obviously appalled by this. When he takes over presidency, that, that palace is abandoned. But the, So this, this is the annual presidential changeover? Yes, in September 1608. That's when John Smith is suddenly made president. And but this is no democratic election. There is a small council of three people, and there's a lot of tra horse trading and bartering going on. People have their say, people have their ideas of who they want. But after Radcliffe, John Smith, I suppose, is the next most senior person. So he takes over. And there's a change of tempo because what John Smith does, he starts getting everyone to start building houses. So there's far more of a house building program. Until that point, the settlement is very rudimentary inside. The church is just canvas uh, and the dwellings are just hovels or tents. So you do start getting houses being built. I mean, very small little cottages around the interior of the fort, which in itself is tiny. 
And the church, the clapboard church goes up and people start carving fonts and that sort of thing. So it does start feeling like a place. That's what John Smith tries to get underway. And he starts drilling the men, trying to get them uh, more soldierly, getting them to understand how important it is to guard that fort. But by that stage, by the time he becomes uh, president, uh, Newport, who has brought his second resupply, decides, right, what I'm going to do in order to cultivate the Indians is I'm going to crown Powhatan. I'm going to make him a king. And this is much against John Smith's advice, who feels undermined, who says, look, if you make Powhatan king, Powhatan is not going to feel that he has to serve us or parley with us. He won't understand what you're talking about. He will think that what you're doing is showing your fealty and loyalty to him, and you will be in a subservient position. But anyway, Newport goes ahead. He actually has a crown with him and a cape. And there, <laughs> there is a crowning ceremony of Powhatan at Powhatan's village. And at one point, the English soldiers fire a volley uh, to mark the event. And Powhatan sort of shrinks away from it, absolutely terrified, but then recovers his composure. And Smith writes quite comically about that particular event. But Newport, having done this, he's still disappointed in not finding gold. Newport is desperate as a commercial man to find gold, to find something that he can tell the Virginia company back in London. Yeah, because he's the guy who has to go back and forth with the resupply and no doubt explain to the king what's going on. Oh, yes. And he takes barrels of soil back with him to assay experts back in London, and they can't find gold. And at the same time, he's taking timber, he's taking sassafras, that scented timber back with him. But that's not enough. They've got to find something that really works, a crop that works, something that is needed back in England. And at this point in time, there's still nothing there. Tobacco is very rough. It's that local uh, tobacco that the Indians smoke and that the English smoke, but it's quite disgusting. There, there isn't that Spanish tobacco yet because the Spanish have got the monopoly on that trade. It's only later on that the English get hold of Spanish tobacco seeds planted and find that fantastic Virginia mellow <laughs> tobacco that becomes well-known later on. Those were the days. They certainly were. So, so anyway, things are in parlor state. Because he is president, what happens now is that Ratcliffe and Gabriel Archer decide to go back to London. And I've always suspected they're going back to get further orders from Cecil because Smith is giving a bit of order to the, to the whole fort, to the whole colony. They want to go back and find what do we do now? So back in England, there's a real urge and an urgency to help Smith, or at least help the fort, get through another year. They're clinging on by this stage. Many have died from disease or from battles with the Indians. There's another winter in prospect. There's no real harvest. And so when Newport leaves, he, he doesn't know whether he's going to come back and find another Roanoke. He doesn't know whether he's going to come back and find it deserted and destroyed. So we get into 1609. There's another tough winter. 
more disease, more death. And so there is growing worry in London from the backers of the Virginia Company that the whole colony is going to die. Out in Virginia, John Smith disperses the colony uh, to different places. Um, he sets up uh, a base at the mouth of the James River that eventually becomes Fort Algernon, a very small outpost, but it allows some of the men to go down there and some of the women, because women have started arriving as well, to collect shellfish and to get fish, some of which they can deliver back down to the fort. So they're there. Others mutiny and go and live with the Indians. So you do start getting uh, some of the colonists settling with the Indians. So back in London, they're terrified that the whole colony is going to collapse and there needs to be a serious push to save it, make it a going concern. And this is the move towards a second charter. So backed by Prince Henry again and with Robert Cecil beginning to perhaps lose control, but of course briefing his agents back in London. The next, the third resupply starts coming together. And this is quite a large one. This is nine ships, but most of them are pinnaces. Most of them are small ships. The largest ship is called the Sea Venture. And that is going to carry not only Admiral Newport, Christopher Newport, who's been doing the resupply missions, it's also going to carry a lieutenant governor, Thomas Gates, and Admiral Summers, George Summers. And these are going to be the hierarchs that really stamp authority uh, on the colony. There's talk of a new governor general going out there and making it a really properly official concern. But again, the hand of Robert Cecil can be seen because what should happen, the next governor general, Lord Delaware, is kept in London, doesn't sail with the fleet in June 1609. He doesn't actually sail till the following year. So the hand of Cecil is probably involved in that. The problem with this fleet and the way it's set up is that most of the food and extra supplies are carried on the 300-ton sea venture. The pinnaces just carry more colonists. So they set out. Seven of the ships make it to Jamestown at different times during the summer and autumn. The one ship that doesn't make it to Jamestown is the sea venture because that is wrecked on Bermuda. It's actually forced ashore by Admiral Newport because they're foundering at that stage. The people on board get ashore. They don't lose anyone. But what happens exactly the same as Jamestown, it divides into factions. They're on this fantastic island, and there they remain for nine months, uh, not only eating and drinking and making merry, but actually fighting amongst themselves. The first thing they do is build a gallows. And George Summers group, Admiral Summers group, go to one part of the island and the other, under Lieutenant Governor Thomas Gates, set up on the other side of the island. And it's not just competition. It's not just Lord of the Flies. They start building rival boats as well. So they cannibalize the destroyed sea venture. They take the rigging off. They take a lot of timber and supplies and they start building rival ships. One is the patience and the other is the deliverance. And it takes 
a long time for them to build, as you can imagine. They're also cutting down Bermuda cedar, which is very strong, very light wood, perfect for shipbuilding. And luckily, they have the carpenters and shipwrights with them that allow them to build these ships completely from scratch. It's the most remarkable achievement. And Bermuda later on becomes a key founding stone for supporting Jamestown and the Virginia colonies later on. It's 700 miles from Jamestown, but it was a very useful base from which the English can then support their colonization of America. But we'll leave them there for the moment, building their ships, because back at Jamestown, uh, all is not good, because the pinnaces of the third resupply turn up, and aboard are Sissel's men, of course. You have Gabriel Archer again, and you have John Radcliffe stepping ashore. And you can imagine uh, John Smith's face as president seeing them uh, when they get off the boat. Thrilled. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled. And, and with them is another key problem for Smith. It's someone called Francis West, who is the younger brother of the future governor general, Lord Delaware. And as soon as he arrives, and as soon as he's backed by John Radcliffe, he decides to take 120 men and go up the James River and set up his own colony. So he heads up the James River with 120 men and creates a settlement that he calls Fort West. What does John Smith do? He takes his own men up the river and starts setting up his rival colony that he calls Nonsuch at a place called Powhatan Tower, which belonged to Powhatan. But Smith commandeers this site, he sees Fort West as a direct um, opposition to his authority. Does Smith have um, a better sort of link in to the locals than these other people? Well, the others are newcomers and don't know the area at all. Francis West hasn't been out there before. So John Smith certainly has an in with the local tribes. Not only has he raided them, he's He's traded with them. He's probably slept with Pocahontas. He knows Opie Kankanu and Powhatan and speaks the Algonquin language, I suspect, quite well by this stage. So he's a veteran by that stage. I mean, he's been there, obviously, since 1607. So, you know, by 1609, he's, he's a veteran of two years in the colony. And he's also been driven by his faith as well. He's driven by his faith and by a, a sort of idea of what is right and wrong for him. And he does not like these newcomers coming along and usurping the authority, not only of himself, but of Jamestown itself. So he gives chase. He actually goes across and manages to persuade Francis West men to join him at Nonsuch. So he goes over to Nonsuch, but Francis West comes and gets them back. And then they're attacked by the Indians. So John Smith goes and helps out there. But ultimately, Smith knows that he can't get them back. So disappointed and probably very down in the mouth, he gets back on his boat and travels back towards Jamestown. And then the most terrible thing happens to him. He's having a nap. He has his powder horn on his lap. And somehow, perhaps someone's been paid to do this, his powder horn explodes. And it's believed that it might well have removed his balls. Uh, 
he's certainly grievously wounded, and he has to travel back down the James River without any sort of opiates, without any sort of alcohol, nothing to relieve the pain. I mean, this shows how incredibly tough these pioneers, these settlers were. He gets back to Jamestown, and I suspect that John Radcliffe, who is there, is absolutely delighted, might well have paid someone to try and kill him anyway. John Smith is basically in his own world of pain, uh, locked away from everyone. And that's when Radcliffe and Gabriel Archer make their move. Uh, Smith writes in his memoirs that there were attempts to murder him at this stage. And again, uh, that may well have been Radcliffe who did that. Um, they then trump up charges again against him. He is ousted as president. He's unceremoniously dumped as president. There's nothing he can do. He's in a very weakened state. And he hands over the letters patent. He hands over the seal of office. That's him finished as president. And you might think it's the end of John Smith. But lo and behold, years later, he reappears on the scene and discovers New England. So he isn't quite finished. He's an inveterate explorer and a very restless spirit. But by that stage, John Radcliffe is certainly in a commanding position. And he and Gabriel Archer manipulate everything and install the very sort of unpolitical uh, and apolitical uh, George Percy as president. I mean, he's the only pair of clean hands left in the settlement. And I, and I suspect that Radcliffe thinks that he's going to be a sort of puppet. But whatever those issues, whatever that situation, uh, the future of Jamestown is really hanging in the balance now because there are more people there and there's no food. The Indians know that things are in a parlous state for the settlement. From autumn onwards, the settlement is just dying. John Radcliffe thinks, well, he's now the head man. I'm going to prove that I can save the colony. So he travels up to meet Powhatan and negotiate, and Powhatan agrees to give grain. They have a lot of feasting, they stay the night, and in the morning there are these baskets of grain for John Radcliffe and his 20 to 30 soldiers to take back down to Jamestown. But they pick up the grain and find that it's a trick. The Baskets have false bottoms, there's very little grain there, and there's then a running battle all the way back to the shallop. And most of the men are killed, some escape into the woods. But John Radcliffe is captured. There's an eyewitness account by a soldier who sees him being tied to a tree by the Indians. He is approached by the women of the village with, guess what, their sharpened muscle shells, and they skin him alive. And that is the end of John Radcliffe. Another person who dies during this period is Gabriel Archer. So they didn't get it their own way. And so it gives an indication that by this stage, there is a real problem. This is the fort descending into chaos and descending into what is called the starving time, the terrible starving time. That is the period that lasts from 1609 through the winter into 1610. If you think things were bad then, they certainly got worse from that moment on. Okay, so it's bad. 
They start eating leather. They start eating rats. They start eating anything that's available. And mutiny grows. There was a, an instance where 17 soldiers and a captain go out to try and get food. The soldiers mutiny. And when members of the fort go out to find out what's happened to them, they find them hanging in the trees with bread stuffed in their mouths. And it's the Indians reveling in the horrors that are about to befall the camp. Those are 17 soldiers, I suppose, that no longer need to be fed by the fort. By that stage, too, Francis West has pinched a pinnace and headed back with 40 men to England. And rather than rail against him and say, this is terrible, that's mutiny too, uh, I think the camp were delighted that, again, there were fewer mouths to feed. It gets worse. Cannibalism starts taking hold. And whether it's George Percy's diaries or other things that have been written, it's pretty clear that people are going out, uh, digging up from the snow the bodies of dead Indians outside and eating them. It's pretty bad. There are instances of them drinking blood from corpses. That, again, is in George Percy's diary. There was a moment in January 1610 where Henry Collins, a married man, was found to have murdered his pregnant wife, thrown the unborn baby in the river, and salted and jointed his wife, started to eat her. George Percy as president needs to somehow stamp some kind of authority. So he ended up having Henry Collins burnt at the stake as an example to the others. And that, don't forget, was using a lot of wood and uh, pine pitch that would have been very useful to keep people warm. But instead, it was used to burn this man at the stake. Recently, there has been the discovery of a Jane Doe, the skeleton of a 14-year-old girl. It's believed that she was possibly killed with a blow to the back of the head, but there's certainly evidence of hatchet marks and that what people were after were her cheeks and her tongue, and maybe her brain as well. So humans were being eaten by that stage. They'd run out of rats, they'd run out of dogs. It was now time for people to be possibly murdered, but certainly for corpses to be eaten. That lasts quite a long time. Things are so desperate by April 1610, George Percy manages to get himself downriver to Fort Algernon, uh, the small fort at the mouth of the James, uh, named after his nephew, incidentally. He tells the 30 or so uh, colonists down there, I'm going to send you a whole load more from Jamestown. We, we, we are dying at Jamestown. Then he disappears and no one hears from him. So the people down at Fort Algernon start thinking that they were the last people left alive in the whole of Virginia. Meanwhile, back at Jamestown, things are so bad that the numbers vary in terms of the estimates, but it's sometimes claimed that by the time the Great Starving starts, there are about 240 colonists left. By the, t the end of the Great Starving, there are probably about 60 left. So over that period from the arrival of the settlers in 1607 
to the time they are actually relieved, they probably lost over 500 people. And so the starving time was the most terrible end to those th three years that they'd spent in Virginia. Um, well, well, you mentioned um, earlier on just briefly Lord of the Flies, and it is, it is at the very moment of um, when things have completely collapsed that salvation appears. Yes, the most remarkable thing appear, appeared because uh, in May, May the 21st, 1610, suddenly two sails appear on the horizon at Fort Algernon and two longboats approach. And it turns out that this is the patience and the deliverance. The two ships built on the beaches of Bermuda, Admiral Summers and Lieutenant Governor Thomas Gates have suddenly arrived. They decide to go and see what's happened to Jamestown. So they sail 35 miles upstream and they step into this absolute wasteland. The ramparts are crumbling. There isn't a sound. They think everyone's dead. And they walk to the church and they ring the bell. And slowly, people emerge. They're crawling, most of them. They're very close to death. It's a piteous sight. And George Percy approaches very gratefully, I suspect, hands over his letters patent and his seal of office, uh, because he has managed to get a few survivors through the starving time and kept a small glimmer of hope alive at the colony. But it's pretty clear to those who step ashore, including uh, Christopher Newport, uh, who relentlessly brought those resupplies across the Atlantic to Jamestown, that it can't go on. They don't have enough food. The colony doesn't have any food. And so they basically have a choice. They either stay and die or they leave. They pack up the colony. They decide very quickly to leave. So they ditch the culvering cannons because they don't want the Spanish to take over and find it easy to, to reinforce and fortify the place. They don't destroy the fort, but they just think they don't really have the strength to do that anyway. Uh, but they decide that is the end of the Jamestown settlement. So they pack into the boats. And this is why I think there are probably only about 60 survivors left at Jamestown, because the only boat left at Jamestown is that 20-ton pinnace, which would only take about 40 people. Uh, the rest of the settlers would be dispersed on those other two makeshift boats that have just arrived. So they pack into these boats and they start heading downstream to Chesapeake Bay. And the plan is to sail up to Newfoundland where they're hopefully they can come across English whaling and fishing vessels, get on board those, get supplies and head back to England. That's the only prospect. If they try and head down to the Indies, they'd probably fall into the hands of the Spaniards and either be killed or imprisoned. They probably don't have the strength to head back to Bermuda anyway. Um, and there's the likelihood of storms. So, and Bermuda's a long way out and uh, south as well. It is. South, it south is. East. 700 miles distant. But So the plan is to stay close to the shore uh, and, and, and head north, essentially, and see what happens. So they are very desperate by this stage. We're now into 
uh, June 1610, and suddenly there is their salvation. Because, but who should arrive but Lord Delaware, their new governor general? And he has come with three ships, with a lot of supplies, and 150 soldiers on board that he's paid for himself, actually. He orders them almost at gunpoint to turn around and head back to Jamestown. And they must have been appalled. They've survived this starvation. They're incredibly weak. The last thing they want to do is go back to a graveyard where they've buried hundreds of their fellow settlers. But Delaware is adamant, and he forces them around, and they head back to Jamestown. And that is the moment where history turns, where the colony is saved, and really where America is founded. Those times of starvation are forgotten because Delaware brings food, plantation begins, and within a few years, there are other settlements further up the James, like Henricus. They settle up near the Falls, which is now modern-day Richmond. Uh, they have another settlement and other forts near modern-day Williamsburg. More and more settlers start arriving from England. And don't forget, this is 13 years from 1607 to 1620 when the Mayflower arrives. So this is really the true settling of America. So, Jamie, what happened to this grand collection of characters? A variety of endings and adventures, I suspect. The first one, of course, was John Smith, who went on being an adventurer. He recovered sufficiently, as I said, to go and discover New England. He led several expeditions. He was eventually captured by French pirates, but got away from them, eventually retired. Then there was George Percy, who stayed on at Jamestown for quite some time, was raised to the level of a squire by Lord Delaware. He became head of the military at Jamestown, gained a reputation for terrible brutality and massacring the Indians, taking them on. He ended up going to the Low Countries, fighting against the Spanish again. So his military career continued. He died in 1627, I believe. Robert Sissel found that his influence was waning and he was getting sicker by the day. He had cancer, a bit like Walsingham, actually, during the Armada. The parliamentarians and the merchant class were becoming ever more influential and he couldn't stem the tide. The royal coffers weren't filling. He couldn't compete and he died in 1612, that arch Machiavelli. So Jamestown continued to survive, probably managed to do so because Cecil wasn't manipulating and intervening uh, from that moment on. Uh, Prince Henry uh, sadly died aged 18 in 1612. So he never saw the full fruits of his labors and his pet project uh, to develop uh, over the next few years because Jamestown expanded on both sides of the James River with more fortifications and larger plantations in the coming years. There was no way from that point on that the Indian nation were going to be able to stand up to that amount of 
backing from England and the sort of firepower and the numbers that were beginning to arrive. And yes, in 1622, uh, O.P. Kankanu managed to um, fight the English again and kill 347 and force them back to the Jamestown settlement itself, the old uh, fortifications. But that was a temporary setback. The English came back uh, in larger numbers and in greater force. And that was really the end of the local tribes in the area. Okay, Jamie. So why is it then that we associate the founding of America with the arrival of the Pilgrim Fathers rather than the arrival of Lord Delaware in June 1610? Largely, I think, because people would rather eat a turkey than a haunch of human, uh, put simply. But also because I think the whole Jamestown experiment was so messy, so factionalized, so grim, and took part, took place over such a long period. I think the whole story of the Mayflower is more clean cut, more defined. And so it's easier to create history from that than from something like Jamestown. Fantastic. Very interesting. Well, you know, when we do these podcasts, we never leave you without a little postscript, or we try not to. So what's our postscript, Jamie? Well, it was going to be about cannibalism again, saying, is that where the Americans got the expression, would you like those buns toasted? But you I just thought... love that subject, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I do. But I thought what we'd talk about is Pocahontas and what happened to her, because it, it's a very tragic story. She was essentially taken hostage in 1613 in return for the uh, giving back of English hostages that were being held by Powhatan, her father. Um, those hostages, I think, were returned, but Pocahontas wasn't. Uh, she ended up uh, staying with the English. She converted to Christianity, called herself Rebecca, and she married John Rolfe, the tobacco planter, in 1614. In 1615, she came back to England with John Rolfe and their infant son. That was on board Samuel Argyll's ship, the Treasure, and that was the ship from whose yardarm Francis Limbrick was hanged. He was the Englishman who worked for Spain as an agent. They hanged him from the yardarm within sight of the English coast. It was a sort of welcome to England package for Pocahontas. She actually created quite a stir in London. She was paraded around. She was called the cultivated and civilized savage. They dressed her in the dress of the period Jacobean dress. She was fated. She even went to the banqueting house and saw a Ben Jonson play in January 1617, uh, but failed to recognize King James apparently because she found him so unimpressive and unprepossessing. But the plan was that she would go back to Virginia with John Rolfe, and she got on the ship. They left their son behind, Thomas Rolfe, to be looked after by John Rolfe's brother, and Pocahontas died and was buried at Gravesend in St. George's Church there. Uh, it's never been known really what she died from. People have suggested typhus, TB, smallpox, you name it. But 
the result was the same, and she was buried. That church of St. George was actually destroyed by fire in 1727, so it's not quite known where Pocahontas' grave is. John Rolfe continued back to Virginia and became a very successful tobacco planter. Uh, two decades on, um, his son Tom went back to Jamestown and took over when John Rolfe died. So that was the story of Pocahontas. She did actually have a daughter with her native husband, but it's not known what happened to the descendants. There are many who claim a line directly back to Pocahontas, but it's very difficult to prove. So many of those tribes just vanished from the area over the centuries that followed. Well, perhaps today people are looking at their DNA and trying to claim that they have a link. Maybe. I'm sure there are a lot of descendants of John Smith around. Actually, probably not, given what happened to him <laughs> on that shallow. Don't bring that up again. <laughs> what a grim tale, but also with flashes of endurance, perseverance and heroism. Settling a colony in the midst of a wilderness was always going to be tough. There will ever be controversy around such missions, but making judgments 400 years on is never wise. Hopefully, we've revealed some of the key themes and events of that period and shown that this really was the true founding of America. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. 